It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. In Scripture, we are reminded to, well, remember. That remembrance is really important to our faith. And in our Daily Thunder today, we're going to be talking about a list of reminders that Paul gives the church in Ephesus. Now, before we jump into today's Daily Thunder, I have a special announcement for any Ellerslie alumni. If you're an Ellerslie alumni and have graduated from one of our training programs, I'd encourage you to join us for the Alumni Summit this October 11th through the 17th. You can learn more about the summit at ellerslie.com forward slash daily. Now, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, as Paul gives a list of reminders of our position and faith in Christ Jesus. I know a lot of you are are new since it's the semester and uh, likely haven't been walking with us through the series, but we've been walking through Ephesians, at least for a little bit while, a little while now. And uh, we're in the middle of chapter two, which is kind of a neat section. Uh, When I was originally studying this section, I came to it years ago, and I, 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 to be honest, I almost skipped it because I was like, "Ah, it's not even that interesting to me. (laughs) It's the word, so it's interesting. But, but in the flow of all of Ephesians, I was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's just get past this stuff. But it was amazing, the more I began to dive into it, the more profound it became in my life. And uh, we're looking specifically at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And Paul's kind of in this brand new section. He's talking in the context about the overwhelming power of God, uh, which is found in chapter 1, verse 19. And he says that the power of God is indescribable. It's just overwhelming. It's just over the top. So how, how would you begin to put words to an indescribable movement of God. And so Paul's trying to articulate the power of God, and he says, well, let me give you a few illustrations or examples of the demonstration of God just to make, you know, help this make sense. So the first illustration he gives is Jesus, which is chapter 1, verses 20 down to verse 23. And he says, Jesus is the demonstration of the power of God. The hair is Jesus, deader than a doornail, and God raised him from the dead and then brought him into the heavenly places and seated him at the right hand of the Father. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he gives you the second illustration, which is you. That here you are, deader than a doornail, spiritually. And what did God do? He reached into your deadness, spiritually, and brought you to life in Christ Jesus, then elevated you into the heavenly realms and seated you in Christ at the right hand of the Father, which is phenomenal. And then he moves into the third illustration, which is what we're in right now, uh, which is verses 11 down to verse 22. And the illustration that he is giving of the power of God is the church. Isn't it a neat thought that the church is supposed to be a demonstration, a picture of the power of God? So let me just read this. We're just going to read the first three verses here. But starting in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul writes, Therefore, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision in the flesh by human hands. And you were at that time a part of from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, in the last session that we were walking through, <clears throat> uh, we were looking at verse 11. And it's interesting what Paul is doing in verse 11. He's setting up this contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he uses a language, and I apologize if this seems a little awkward, but he uses the language of circumcision. And he says, here is this group of Jews who are the circumcised, that God gave them the covenant to Abraham, and the sign, the physical outward sign of that covenant was circumcision. And again, if you don't know what that is, ask somebody else. But, but circumcision, that was, that was the external sign. Isn't it interesting that what God's desire was is that this group who was circumcised in this outward sign of an inward reality that they had with God was actually, according to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and 1 through 3, they were supposed to be the blessing to the world so that the world would see what God was doing through his people and say, I need in on that. But what ended up happening? Well, the Jews, and forgive me for the crudeness, but I think Paul's playing on some language here that I think is actually really fun. But here is this group who are, for a lack of better terms, the cut-off ones, who, instead of being a blessing to the world, have cut off everyone else from getting in. And there's this interesting play on words that, that Paul seems to be playing with, where the circumcised, the cut-off ones, have cut off everybody else from God. And what Paul is doing in our passage is he's talking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, let me remind you what you once were. This is not who you are, this is what you once were. And he says, hey, you were called the uncircumcised by that which was called the circumcised. That the Jews looked at you and just went, psst, Gentiles. Ugh. Do you know how bad the Jews hated the Gentiles? This isn't like, well, we dislike them. Yeah, we could live without them. This was so intense. In fact, one scholar, let me give this to you. One scholar said this, that the enmity between Jews and Gentiles was the greatest racial and religious difference the world has ever known. I mean, if you think the racial tensions now is intense, I mean, this was, in, this was insane. In fact, one of my all-time favorite quotes from this whole thing, uh, we're told that the Jews despised the Gentiles on such a level I mean, this wasn't just like, well, don't like you. They despised them, hated them on such a level. They put up with them, but they despised them on such a level that in the mind of the Jew, the only reason why God created the Gentiles, get this, was that Gentiles were going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Whoa, praise the Lord. Now that's intense. That's not how you make a friend. Hi, you're a Gentile? Oh, God has a special plan for your life. <gasps> really? What is it? You are fuel for hell. I mean, this, this distinction was incredibly intense. Now, we know that there were some Gentiles who got in on the movement of God. For example, Rahab, right, in the book of Joshua or Ruth. 
And so we know that there were, there were some Gentiles who got in. But for the most part, Gentiles were those people out there who, are, who do not have a partnership, who do not belong with God. Now, it is interesting, by the time of Jesus, there was a court of the Gentiles in the temple. And my guess is the reason there was a court of the Gentiles in the temple is because of the one who built the temple, which was Herod. And when Herod was rebuilding the temple during the time of Jesus, it seems like he had installed this court of the Gentiles in case some people from the nations wanted to come and visit the temple. And if they wanted to come and worship God, they were allowed, but they had this little barrier. There's this wall. In fact, archaeology has found a piece of this wall. And on this wall, there's a placard that says for a Gentile to go past the wall meant death. In other words, we'll let you, if you want to, if you really want to worship our God, fine. But you actually can't draw near. You can kind of stand on the outskirts. But at least you can get near, sort of, close. You can look at it. Isn't that interesting? And so the division between Jew and Gentile was absolutely intense. So if you can imagine then what Paul is addressing in the passage is here is a whole church who are full of Gentile believers. What are you going to do with those people? By the way, you know who the Gentiles are, right? Us. <laughs> and so here's all these Gentile believers who are going, what is my relationship? What is my position in the family of God? Do I actually have anything? Because I have been cut off all the way up to this point. And so Paul's addressing that issue. Again, he's talking to the Gentiles, this, this church in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor or southern Turkey, and he's saying, hey, look, you are Gentiles. But does that mean you have no relationship? Does that mean you have no access? Does that mean, what, what does it mean? to be a Gentile believer. Now we know, and we walked this through in the last few episodes or a few, few lessons, but the early church had to deal with this. Of course, you know, Peter began, goes to Cornelius' house and, and all these Gentiles get saved and then the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is not to come upon the Gentiles. Are you kidding me? Paul goes out and does these missionary journeys and all these Gentiles start getting saved. What are we going to do with them? So in Acts 15, there's this council in Jerusalem, and they're debating, can Gentiles be Christians without becoming a Jew first? In other words, as a Gentile, do you first have to be circumcised? Do you have to keep the laws of Moses? Do you have to go through the rituals and, in order to be, to be a Christian? And do you know what they concluded? No. That you can actually be a Gentile? Christian, can you believe it? So now you don't have to be circumcised. Now you don't have to keep the rituals. Now, now you don't have to do the festival things. Now you don't, why? Because God, God is going to move in this. And what Paul's addressing again in the passage is he's taking the Gentiles, he's taking the Jews, and what's the demonstration of the power of God? He's bringing them together. So what he's doing then, if you, if you look at our verses here in verses 11 and 12, Paul is giving a reminder to this church of where they came from. What did they come from? So here's this group of Jews who are the circumcised, and yes, it was a physical thing, and yes, it was an external demonstration of a covenant, but God's desire all along was not external circumcision. 
He gave it to it. It's not bad. But why, why did he give the sign of circumcision? He gave the sign of circumcision because it was to be a picture of what he wanted to do in the heart. In fact, let me give you a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 10, 16. God says, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Who's he talking to? The circumcised guys. And he says, hey, look, you have this in an external evidence, but your heart needs this. So again, it's not a downplay of the external. It's a, it's a highlighting of the internal. Uh, Jeremiah 4.4. Jeremiah writes, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. What is God after? The inside stuff. He's interested in the external. So we can't just throw out the external. But what's his big desire? The heart stuff. That makes sense? And what did the Jews have? They had all the external evidence, but they were missing the heart stuff. And God says, I want the heart. And it's neat that by the time you get into Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, and listen to what, he's talk, what Paul says in terms of the church. This is Romans 2, 20 through 29. For he is not a Jew who was one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. So again, God gave this thing. It's not bad. But his desire was not the external. What's God's desire? Heart stuff. So again, come back into verses 11 and 12. Here are these Jews, these circumcised, who were looking at the Gentiles going, "Uh, you uncircumcised. But then Paul goes on in verse 12, and look at what he says. He gives you a list. He says, you were at that time, apart from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. And that list of five things Paul gives you in the negative, meaning this is what the Gentiles do not have, which means if you turn it to the positive, this is what the Jews do have. Does that make sense? In other words, he's telling the Gentiles what they don't have access to. And it's all given in the negative. You don't have this, you don't have this, you don't have this, you don't have this, you don't have this. Which means, oh, let's talk about the Jews really quick. What did they have? Paul says, oh, you are a part, the Jews are a part of the commonwealth of Israel. They were citizenships. They were citizens of Israel. Well, what does that mean? It's interesting, that word for citizen, citizen or citizenship or commonwealth, depending on your translation, that word in the Greek only shows up two times in the New Testament. One of them is right here, obviously. The other time this word shows up is in Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 22, here is Paul. He's been taken captive. And let me just read this. This is Acts 22, verses 25 through 28. It says that they bound Paul with thongs, these, you know, these, these ropes. Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and yet uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do. For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. 
That's that word. And Paul says, but I was born a citizen. That word, if you actually look at it in the Greek, it's where we get the word politics from. And what Paul's really saying, it has this idea of politics, but the, the better idea really is this, the rights of a citizen. It's the commonwealth idea. And what is Paul saying? He's, he's saying, look, I, I was born, yes, I was born a Jew, but I have the rights of a Roman. And the centurion says, wow, I had to pay a ton of money to have the rights. Do you realize that it was a benefit if you were a Roman citizen in the Roman Empire? In other words, just because you were in the Roman Empire, Rome takes over everything, right? Just because they took you over doesn't mean you're a citizen. In fact, you're a second-class citizen. In fact, you have no rights. But if you were a Roman citizen, woo, you had some benefits. You had the protection of Rome. Uh, one of them I thought was neat is you had an exemption from all degrading punishments. In other words, Rome, at any time that they wanted to, they could grab someone and just give them a punishment, no matter how degrading. And if you go back through histories, there were some degrading punishments, which we're not going to get into. But as a Roman citizen, you had the right to say, I'm a Roman citizen, and you can show proof of that. And they could not just do whatever they wanted to you. In other words, you actually had to go through a, a, a legal case. They had to prove that you were guilty, and then they would punish you. But if you weren't a citizen and you got caught, they'd just start beating you. Uh, most of us, there's a, there's a few northerners called Canadians here, but most of us are, are citizens of the U.S. Do you, do you realize that you get a benefit of being a citizen of, of the U.S.? Now, I know you probably don't think of it that way because there's some things you're like, I don't like that part. Like taxes. But that's actually a benefit to you. How? You get roads. <laughs> In my mind, that's a benefit. Have you tried driving on a road that's not a road? And I have a little grandma car, so I mean, it, that thing doesn't do off-roading very well. I mean, hey, you, you, get, you get police and you get fire departments and you get medical stuff and you get there there are certain benefits one of the benefits that we have in this country is that if if you're accused for a crime they just can't start beating you that's a benefit in fact you were supposedly not guilty until proven guilty and you get to go through a legal case you realize that has not been true throughout history that that's actually a benefit that we share in so as a Roman citizen then, you had certain benefits, right? You can appeal to the emperor. Paul did that. Not everybody could do that. But if you're a Roman citizen and you're in a, in a court case, you could actually t appeal and say, I, I, want, I want to take this to Caesar. Uh, there's those kind of things. That makes sense? As a part of the citizenship of Israel, as a part of the commonwealth of Israel, there were tremendous benefits, let me just give you a couple of them. You got fellowship with God. I don't know if you realize that's a benefit. That the God of the universe was your God. And no other people was able to claim that. That was exclusive to the Israelites. There was protection. There was divine blessing. 
There was direction. There was security. There was governance. There was divine law. And there's identity, which I thought was interesting. That as a part of the citizenship or the commonwealth of Israel, that was my identity. And my identity became that God. That I am his and he is mine kind of stuff. But as Gentiles, you got none of that. Good luck. Uh, Paul goes on and says not only the, the covenant or the commonwealth thing, he says, but you are strangers to the covenants of promise. That here is God and he's made all these exceedingly and great and precious promises. And the Jews had the privilege of partaking in those. That they got to share in the, in the promises. And there are exceedingly great and precious promises in this book. But as Gentiles, pst, nothing. Good luck. Uh, Paul says that the Jews had hope. Why? Because they had God. There's all these benefits that you got to partake in because of the fact that you were a part of this Israel thing. And Paul is reminding the Gentiles, you did not have any of this stuff. Hey, you were Gentiles. You were cut off. You were, you were s- severed. You've been separated. So again, think about this. When you start actually going down through our list of what we did not have access to, Paul says, hey, you were apart from Christ. That, that we were separated. We had no means of gaining access to salvation and life. That Christ was over there, and we were over here going, ah, I, I won over there. In fact, it's really interesting, that word without Christ. Again, it has this idea of separation or, or without. But the literal idea in the Greek is that there's this gulf. There's these two cliffs, and there's this massive gulf. In fact, the, the, the idea is that it's a bottomless gulf. And there's no way that me over here can get over there. I can't jump over there. I can't, you know, there's no way for me to get over there. And Paul's saying, I am without him, meaning there's no access. By the way, this word shows up several times in, in, the, in the New Testament. One time it is used, Philippians 2.14. Think about this. Do all things without complaining or disputing. Do you realize that there's supposed to be a gulf? between you doing all things and complaint and disputing? That when you're doing whatever it is that you do, there should be no access in your life to complaining or disputing. Don't look at me that way. That's convicting. Isn't that miserable? How often we're just like, oh, all right, I'll do it. Do you know what that's called? Murmuring which is complaining. Oh, not again. Oh, right? When you roll your eyes at your parents, when you have that underneath your breath, what is all that? Complaining. As a Christian, Paul says that there should be a gulf between you and complaint. And no matter what you do, there is no complaining or disputing. And there should be no way for you to be able to get to complaining or disputing. All right, try that one for the rest of the day. John 15, 5. I love this one. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, 
But without me, you can do nothing. Do you know what he's saying? That there's this gulf. And if you don't have him, you can't do anything. Which means you need him. Think about what Paul's saying here in our passage. He's saying that there's this gulf. And that Jesus is over there, and I've been over here, and up to this point, I've never had access. I can see it, I may desire it, but I can't have it. Why? There's a gulf. And as a Gentile, I am without Christ. I'm hopeless. There, there's no... There's, if that wasn't bad enough, he says that not only was I apart from Christ... But I've been excluded. I'm an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. Again, it's this idea to be shut out of. And I've been excluded from fellowship and and intimacy. That I don't have any rights or privileges. Why? I'm a Gentile. I can't claim him as my God. I I can't claim the benefits. Why? Because I have no partaking. I I, I don't have fellowship. I, I I don't have access into the citizenship of Israel. He says not only that, but I'm strangers of the covenants covenants of promise. That again, there's all these great, exceedingly great and precious promises. Read read 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. And 2 Peter is constantly saying, do you realize that in Jesus, you have all things that you need for life and for godliness? And then he goes on and says, by which he has given to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. But you don't have access to that. You're a stranger to that. Why? You're a Gentile. And then he says, because of all that, you are without hope. You realize that if there's this chasm and there's no possible way of getting across and there, there's, there's no way you can obtain and there's no relationship available and there's nothing you realize you have no hope in that. This isn't like, well, maybe one day I'll, there'll be a bridge. There's no bridge coming. Well, may, maybe at some point. There, there's no some point. Why? You're a Gentile. Hey, you've been cut off. Therefore, you have no hope. And perhaps worst of all, Paul says you are without God in this world. Do you know how miserable it must be right now for all those people in the culture who don't have Jesus? I don't know if you pondered this, but with all the craziness and, and all the fear and all the lawlessness and all the rioting and all the, all, the, all, the, all, the, all the stuff that's going on, you realize how depressing that has to make you feel? Do you realize that if you don't have God in the world right now, that... No wonder people drink. No wonder people get, take drugs. No wonder they're, they're, they're binge-watching Netflix and playing video games 12 hours a day. And Why? They're trying to inebriate themselves from, from the constant pressures of life. Why? Because there's no hope. And that's who we once were. But I love what Paul says in verse 13. He says in verse 13, but I have to, I honestly think that may be one of the greatest words in the Bible. You have Jesus, which is the greatest word in the Bible. 
I think in the top 10 has to be included the word but. It is a contrasting conjunction where you're setting up a contrast of two things. You have this picture over here and it's contrasted with this reality over here. And I love how Paul uses the word. He's constantly saying, hey, can I tell you what you once were? Can, can I remind you where you were? Can I remind you what your life looked like? And then he uses the word, but this is your reality. In fact, he did that. If you go back a few verses up to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Look at verses 1 through 3. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among them, you also once lived in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's a miserable list. Did you hear this? You were dead in trespasses and sins. There was no life within you, spiritually. That there, there was nothing. You were dead, folks. And then he begins to explain that in verses 2 and 3. And he says, hey, you lived according to the course of the world. That whatever the world says is right and proper, you said, yep, that's right. That's true. And you put yourself under the authority of the mindset of the world. And your life came in alignment with that world. He says, if that wasn't bad enough, you lived according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works on the sons of disobedience. Which does not mean you're demon-possessed. So please hear this. It's not that you're demon-possessed, but you took yourself and brought yourself under the authority of the darkness. That the same spirit that rules the darkness and the demonic, you said, you know what, I like that idea over there. And so you submitted yourself under the authority of darkness and said, do what you want with me. So you're not possessed by demons, though you could be. Right? Hey, before you were a Christian, that, that's a possibility. But that doesn't mean everyone who's not a Christian is possessed. Make sense? But when you're not a Christian, what are you doing? You're aligning yourself under the authority of darkness. And you're saying, darkness, oh, will you just do whatever you want with me? He, then he goes on and he says, you were doing the lust of your flesh. And the word there has this idea of you're, you're pacing back and forth. In fact, Maybe a modern illustration is this idea that you're, you're, you're taken and you're thrown into like a, a dryer or a washing machine. And have you ever been to like a laundromat and you watch the clothes, it just goes thump, 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 thump. Paul says, do you, know what? do you know what you've done? Your life has been taken and whether you wanted it or not, you've been thrown into this washing machine and you're just thump, 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 doing the lust of your flesh and you can't even help yourself. You don't even like it at times, but you just, you can't seem to get out of this thing and it, is, it may be miserable and you just, I hate this stuff, but you just, you keep pacing back and forth in the middle of it. Thump, 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 thump. And if that wasn't bad enough, he then goes on and he says, not only were you, living in the lust of your flesh, but you are doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And the word there has this idea that you were, yeah, and before you were thrown into the watch machine, the thump, the thump, the thump. And this idea, this is like, I, I actually love sin so much, I was being inventive in my sin. And I was creating ways to sin. And it was just coming out of my life. And I was oh, creating sin. 
that just as an artist paints a masterpiece, so I was producing sin. And if that wasn't bad, because of all that, I was a child of wrath, even as the rest. Paul says, hey, let me remind you where he came from. But in verse 4, you have an amazing word. But! Isn't that awesome? But God! So see the contrast. Here is my life full of sin and darkness. I've given myself over to the world and the mindset of the world and the things of the world. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in sins, he made us alive with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says, this no longer defines you. What defines you? Jesus. And the reality of the Christ life. So now, here he is in our passage, verse 11 and 12, and he says, hey, I want to remind you again, you were Gentiles cut off. Here you are, you had no access. Here you are, you were strangers of the covenants of promise. Here you are, you had no hope. Here you are, you did not have God in this world. But do you know what took place? Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were afar off, you have been cut away. You who were strangers have been brought near. And now you get to be partakers of this new reality. And we're going to look at this more next week. But it is amazing to me that when you start to get into this heart of what, what Paul is saying here in our passage, verses 11 through 22, what he's saying is God took the Gentiles and God took the Jews, and he brought them together, verse 14, and he made them one. And isn't it a marvelous reality that in heaven there is not Jewish Christians and there's not Gentile Christians? There's just Christians. And that God is doing a brand new deal. And you get to partake of that. Why? Because he has brought you near. You now have access. You now have hope. You now have access to God. Now you have all the things that you need for life and godliness. Now you get to partake in the covenants of promise. Now! Why? Because you have Jesus. It's interesting to me, though, that Paul says, hey, remember, in verse 11, why would Paul remind us of where we came from? I don't, I don't know about your, your life, but there's things in all of our lives, it seems like, that we want to kind of forget and be like, yeah, that didn't happen. Or, yeah, let's downplay that. Or, yeah, let's get out of that. Or, yeah, let's, don't focus over there. And Paul says, hey, remember all this. Why, why would we need to remember that? What, what's the whole point of remembering? Do you realize it's so easy, especially for Christians, to forget where we came from, which therefore downplays the significance of the cross. That it becomes so normal. We think about it, we sing about it to the point where in one sense, it becomes so familiar that it becomes meaningless in our lives. You realize one sin was enough to send us to hell for eternity. We had a debt 
that never could be paid. But what did Jesus do? He paid it. And I know we sing the songs about it, which is awesome. And I know we meditate about, oh, the wondrous cross, the wondrous cross. But the moment I forget what he brought me out of seems to lower the significance of where he is taking me and what he has done in me. Now, please hear me. I don't want to highlight the past. I I don't want to give it any more airtime than needed. I don't want to say, woo, let's talk about all the details. That's not needed. But it is important in our lives to have these, what what was called in the Old Testament, the stones of remembrance, these piles of rocks or the Ebenezer's where we look back and go, oh yeah, I I remember what God did in this area of my life, and wow, think about what he brought me out of. Now, I know a lot of us grew up in the church, and therefore, you know, it's it's hard to have those, you know, when I was a little kid, I wanted those great, I wanted to one of those great testimonies. You know, someone stood up and be like, I want to share what God did in my life. You know, I used to go out and used to drink and was with a different woman every night and killed four people with a wet squirrel, but when I turned five years old, God got a hold of my life, and wow, just turned me upside down. I've never been the same since, you know? I mean, I wanted one of those great testimony things. And, and it's, I think sometimes it's easy if you're in the church who didn't have that kind of story to go, oh, yeah, I've been fine. I grew up in the church. You realize you're just as guilty as the guy Why? Because you still have sin. Paul grew up in the church. He did everything right, and yet he said, I'm the chief of sinners. And my guess is if Paul was here, we go, Paul, buddy, I think you mistake. I think you're mistaken. Because you, of all people, are not the chief of sinners. Because I, I, could, I could take a run at it. You realize every person should be able to argue that. Because in the, in the reality, in the light of who God is, we all deserve punishment. We all deserve eternity in hell. None of us have an excuse. We've all rebelled. So you cannot say, well, I grew up in the church. I think I'm doing good. You have to say, I grew up in the church, but I still rebelled. I still sinned. I chose my own way. I, I still lived in selfishness and sin and junk. And I need Jesus. And I may not have murdered people, but I need Jesus just as much as the murderer does. And just as Paul can claim that he was the chief of sinners, so too when I began to look at my sin, boy, I am a chief of sinners. Not that we want to dwell upon the sin. Please don't dwell upon the sin. But if you forget where you've come from, you realize that your focus and your love and your appreciation of what God has done in your life begins to diminish. Again, not that we want to highlight the junk. So please hear me. But you can't forget about the junk. If anything, you should go, Woo, let me tell you what God's done in my life. There was a lot of junk. But wow, but God in my life. That I experienced the but God. And he stepped in, changed everything. Why would Paul call us to remember? Why would Paul tell the Gentile church of Ephesus that, wow, you had no access and, hey, you've been thrown out and you had nothing. So they would not take for granted that which they do now have. 
So they would embrace it all the tighter. So they would go, wow, Jesus, you are so good. Look at what you've done in my life. Let us never forget the goodness of our God. Let us never forget the fact that we were supposed to receive an eternity in hell, and yet we now get to have relationship and intimacy with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that all of us have experienced this, whoa, but God in our lives. And now, because of Christ in your life, think about this, you get Jesus. You get to be a partaker of the commonwealth of Christ, which is a brand new deal. You are partakers of his promises. You have tremendous hope in this world. And you no longer just have this external God out there somewhere. And yeah, I I have him. He has come to indwell your life. And now that God, who has now come inside, wants to produce in you a life of triumph and victory and hope in the midst of a dark and deadly world. You have been brought near. Can we rejoice in that reality? Will you not forget the tremendous things that God has done in your life? And this isn't a whoa. This is a whoa. That if you would actually see what Jesus did, that should make you smile. Tell your faces. Hey, this, this should cause joy to bubble forth. This should cause worship and praise and adoration to come forth, shouldn't it? Because he is worthy, folks. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, thank you for rescuing us who've been far off, who've been cut off, that you brought us near, and that in you we get to partake of the commonwealth of Christ Or as Colossians says, we've been transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the dear Son. We get to be citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. And because of that, we get to be partakers of the covenants of promise that we get to have hope in this world. And when all the world is going crazy and losing their mind, we can be steadfast because we have hope. Because we have Jesus in this world. Lord, thank you for that reality. Thank you that while we were headed to hell, you rescued. Lord, let us not forget what you've, the, the, the price you paid on our behalf. Lord, let us not forget the tremendous depth you went to on our sakes, for our sakes. And Lord, I'm convinced that if we would truly somehow capture, grab a hold of this idea, we could not help but sing forth your praises. We could not just help but stand and marvel at the reality of what you have done and what you are doing. That we just, we just couldn't help ourselves, but our whole life would be one of worship. Wow, look at what Jesus has done. Wow, look at what Jesus is doing. Whoa, he's not done yet. So Lord, we just want to worship you. We love you. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. 
Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.